Some of the cases we talk about on this episode include recounts of dismemberment and rape, so listener discretion is advised. If you want to skip past these stories, check the description for the time codes. You, you don't always win. It's not always about the winning. It's about justice, you know, for me, and, you know, being the voice of victims because they don't have a voice anymore, you know, so that's always been hugely important. And I think that's the reason why we do what we do. Welcome to Pros and Coms. In this podcast, I talk to people about their personal and professional stories, uncovering the different ways and common themes of resonating with an audience. After all, communication is essentially storytelling. I'm Maria Ginai, and today I'll be talking to Pushbar Guild. Pushbar was a detective inspector and served in the Bedfordshire Police Force for over 30 years. As an Asian woman in the 80s, her experience joining the police was unique, and she's seen the environment change drastically over the years. Now, she's supporting new recruits as they start their careers on the force. So walk me through your life and and your career and everything that's happened up to this point. Okay, well, I was born in June 1967. Uh, Good year that was, best year. Um, Flower Power and the Beatles and everything, you know, all of that was going on. Not that I remember because I was just a baby. Um, So, yes, I was born in Bedford, in Bedfordshire. And I, along with everyone else that came after, after me, we were like the first generation of Asians that were born in this country, born and raised in, in this country. You know, that my mum and dad had just um, arrived from India. They'd only been here a few years and they'd come here to settle for a better life for themselves and for us and for greater opportunities, I guess. So I was, I am one of four um, siblings. I'm the second eldest and my elder sister, she uh, she was born in India and she came over with my mum and when my dad actually settled and found a place for us. So yeah, so we uh, lived in Bedford, we were uh, we raised in Bedford, went to school in Bedford and it was a really, um, the 70s and 80s were really difficult time for us um, growing up um, because there was a real clash of cultures, East and West. Um, we wanted to be like our friends and have all the opportunities and independence that they had and we weren't allowed to do that because of my parents and um, you know the cultural beliefs they held and religious beliefs they held and um, they you know I saw them as a hindrance um, to my progression uh, both as an individual and you know um, in terms of what I could achieve so my older sister she was doing really well at, you know with her schooling and um, I went a little bit off the rails, to be fair, and um, I became a very challenging teenager. I pushed all the boundaries. I did things that I shouldn't have done, and I was very, very difficult to manage. Um, And then my younger sister, I didn't really set a good example to her either. And my brother came very late on uh, when I was about 13. So it was a really difficult time. There was a lot going on in society in terms of racism. National Front, IRA, you know, all those things were like daily news to us, you know what I mean? So I didn't even know what discrimination was until um, I started to interact with my peers and go to school and, and, you know, um, become exposed to those environments. So, you know, there's no, there's no, nobody tells you how to deal with racism and discrimination, but somehow you, you do. And I wasn't one to be confrontational when I was a teenager. So anyway, so um, I, you know, my parents had a very difficult time with me. I realise that now, you never do at the time. And it was never my plan to join the police service, to be honest with you. I wanted to become a lawyer. I wanted to become a barrister and that's what I was aiming for. But unfortunately, due to our family's circumstances at the time, my education was cut short um, and I left school at 17. And I had little or no qualifications. So uh, the next two years were really challenging for me on a personal level. 
um, and I was sort of a little bit lost and I didn't know where I was going to go um, and what I wanted to achieve and you know I didn't really have any aspirations or goals but what I did know was that I had seen a lot of things happen to my friends and people within the community in terms of their experiences and I didn't like what I saw I didn't like the pressure that was being put to bear on my friends um, you know to have arranged marriages or being forced into marriages and being intimidated manipulated by family pressures and things like that and so I, I felt really quite strongly about it and that was a driver for me then to join the police service because I wanted things to change I wanted there to be greater understanding of our culture and things that we had to face um, and I also wanted to make a difference and I felt the only way that you could make a difference and make a change was to actually be part of that community that can influence that change. So in 1986 I joined and I, I found the whole experience quite testing again because I wasn't a particularly, you know, sports weren't something that was um, promoted within our home and within our culture and of course in order to be a police officer you need to be physically fit. So I found the physical side, physical fitness very challenging. Um, but I had to work really hard at it and and eventually, you know, I did and I was successful. So in July 1986, I, I, I joined Bedford Police. But um, there is a funny story because when I went for my interview, in those days you had a panel of three senior officers and invariably they were all men. And the chair of the panel was the chief constable at the time. And I, I will never, ever forget, I mean, I, I felt like I was drowning in this room full of really senior people. And there was little on me. And I was only 19. I'd only just turned 19. And they actually rejected me in that interview. They said to me, the chair said to me that uh, we think as a panel, you've led a very sheltered life. And we think you need to go away and spend some time in your local police station to ensure that this is exactly what you want to do in terms of your profession. I knew I knew what I wanted and I knew that's what, what I wanted to do. So I thought, you know, to appease them, I did. I went away and spent a couple of weeks at, at the police station in Bedford, the local station, and, um, and then came back, had another interview, and I was determined, and I think they could see that my determination and, and finally, you know, uh, accepted me. So... I have to say that decision didn't go down well with my family. My dad went berserk. Um, you really, I don't think I've ever seen him that angry. But, you know, in, in retrospect, I can see why he was so angry because he felt it wasn't a profession for young women. It was dangerous. The police are corrupt because those are the beliefs that the Asian community held at that time because they were comparing you know, they didn't, there was no comparison between the British police force and the police force back home in India. So, you know, um, they, they thought they were um, all the same, corrupt and, and deceitful. So, again, I felt, well, in order to change those attitudes, I've got to get in there and, you know, do my bit and try and influence people and, and make, make them change, change their minds. So yeah, and that's where my journey began in 1986, and then I underwent my police training. And I think I always knew that I wanted to go into crime investigation. I always knew that's where my my heart lay, and that's where I wanted to progress. So, uh, you know, I spent a long time on um, uniform patrol and, you know, community policing. The first 10 years of my service I spent which is a very long time by today's standard. And then um, in 96, I passed my detectives process and I was posted to um, Luton Police Station. When I originally started with Bedfordshire Police, I was posted to Dunstable, which was a very odd decision in itself because, you know, you would think rationally they would place me where there are, where there is a large Asian community or there is a diverse community, uh, but they didn't, like Luton. They posted me to Dunstable. I think I was the only Asian person in Dunstable at the time, you know, so... And do you know why they did that? 
I don't. I can speculate. I don't know. And <laughs> what I what I will say is my so when um, I completed all my training, I was um, came back from training school. Um, you spend probably about 10, 12 weeks with a tutor constable. And basically the tutor constable shows you the ropes of practical policing. Um, and you go out with that individual and they, you know, show you all the practicalities. For the first time I went actually went out on my own on independent patrol was on a night shift, a Friday night shift. And I was on my own and I was in the high street in Dunstable and the pubs were turning out and that's in that in those days the pubs used to turn out at eleven o'clock. And I will never forget I was crossing the high street and uh, a a pub um and there were some young lads that just uh were leaving the pub and they were congregating in, in the area and all i heard was racist abuse hurled at me chips thrown at me orange peels thrown at me and i was in full uniform and 19 years old and i had a decision to make at that particular point uh and that being was i going to go and remonstrate with these individuals and enforce the law um, or was I going to walk away and hope that you know that it that it came to nothing and they would just go away and go home and they were obviously very drunk and I cho- chose to walk away only because I knew my backup was at least ten minutes away and it would have been foolish really to take on a group of twelve youths with one of me because that must have been really frightening though it was frightening it was frightening um, but. I think I, I, in some respects, I felt I held my head up high because I didn't give them what they wanted. They wanted a reaction from me and they didn't get it. But I didn't forget them and they did come again. So, you know, there's, it's a small town, Dunstable, and, you know, everybody knows everybody. But So that was my first experience of independent. Because it was scary. And, you know, I would, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't scared. But equally... I also was realistic about the fact that, you know, um, there weren't a lot of resources in those days and, you know, I I would have been waiting at least 10, 15 minutes for my backup to arrive. A lot can happen in 10, 15 minutes. Mm. So you made it to um, being a detective inspector, didn't you, yeah. through your career? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the most I know about policing is from watching like the bill and yeah. 24 hours in yeah. police custody so I'm not massively versed in mm. it so for people who aren't aware mm. what is the route to that like and how has that changed through through your yeah. career is there less obstacles or yeah I mean it's, it's a lot more simplified now the process back when I um joined I, I said to you that I was um uniform constable for 10 years because that's how difficult it was for women to get into CID, into crime investigation departments, uh, because it was a very male-dominated environment. So, you know, when I was posted to Luton as a young detective, I was the only female surrounded by, I don't know, 30 men. Wow. I was the only, and I was, I was heavily pregnant at the time as well. So I think I was about six months pregnant with my second child. But I've always had the attitude that I'm going to make it work. And I don't, I, I had nothing to prove to anyone else. You know, I I was very confident in my own abilities. I knew I had a lot to learn too. So, you know, I, I just got put my head down and got on with it. But in terms of promotion, up to the level of inspector, so from constable you go to sergeant, then inspector, you have to sit. Uh, promotion exams and then if you pass the exams then you have to go through a selection process and that process has now been much more simplified it was very bureaucratic previously when when I was promoted and then from inspector onwards the promotion ladder is is there are no more exams uh, as such um, and it's really based on your um, performance in, in, in those in the ranks and your evidence and basically you've got to now create a portfolio of evidence so if you want to progress to the next rank you've got to demonstrate a commitment to that in your working life you know so and you can go all the way up to chief constable 
So there are many ranks between inspector and chief constable. Generally, these days, the chief constable is not usually from the same force. So, for, you know, for instance, when, when I joined, the chief constable was from Bedfordshire, but now they tend to bring in people, you know, higher senior leaders from um, other forces. So, yeah, there is a process. It's less bureaucratic. Whether it's fair or not, who knows, you know. But what I will say is that um, there has been a massive increase of female representation across all the ranks. And, you know, when when I went to uh, CID in Luton in 96, it was my mission to encourage other females and officers from underrepresented groups. Um, I made it my mission to encourage them and support them mentor them, coach them, and I still do that now because I think it's really important. I, even when I left the major crime unit and I retired in 2018, I was still the only female agent officer Wow! in 2018. So that was, I was actually going to ask you about that because you said, you know, back when you first started, there was underrepresentation, which you might expect, and more more women have joined the force. But it still sounds like there's some sort of barrier or issue. Why do you why do you think that is? I mean, you've spoken about your background and the fact that you know Asian culture doesn't necessarily encourage women to go into types of jobs like police, and we're hoping that is changing and will change. But in general, you know, why do you think there is such a problem with women? Is it women coming into the force or is it them staying in the force? What do you think the problem is? It's both. It's both, actually, because in addition to being, you know, a senior investigating officer, I've also been working, I've also worked heavily with um, the Bedfordshire Police Federation and they basically represent officers' rights um, and they also deal with conduct and standards, professional standards. And I was also the chair of the Black and Asian Support Staff Group in Bedfordshire. And it is a bit of both. I think in terms of joining, people within the, certainly the Asian community, I would say, don't see it as an attractive career choice. You know, and they have bigger aspirations for their children, like doctors, lawyers, scientists, you know, um, and obviously they pay more as well. You know, money does come into it. And and once they do join, um, I don't know if you know, but a couple of years ago, I think the year I re- retired in 2018, Bedfordshire had gone on a campaign, recruitment campaign, to increase their um, Black and Asian minority ethnic numbers and get you know good quality candidates to join the police service, and they did very well. They won national awards. They increased the representation, uh, you know, doubled it tripled it within two years but the difficulty came in retaining those officers and I, I will be honest you know people I'm sure you're thinking and you will ask you know is there racism in the police I certainly think there's discrimination and there's unfavorable treatment of black um, and Asian minority ethnic staff and officers some of it I think is overt and conscious But I believe, from my experience, a lot of it is due to unconscious bias, you know, and preconceived ideas, misconceptions about people from BAME communities and BAME backgrounds. And I have to say, you know, all the forces, because I have a lot to do with Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire and Cambridge, and they've done a lot to try and increase knowledge and awareness across forces across staff groups and officer groups. I have dealt with a number of cases where people have actually played the race card, you know, like, you know, in both cases, it was Asian men that had claimed they were being discriminated against and targeted because they were Asian when really they were targeting the white people because they were white. Um, And one of the lads, he ended up murdering a white boy in Watford and he claimed he was the victim God. of racial abuse. Mm. And then in, in the other one, that was many years ago in Luton, a group of Asian lads attacked a young white couple just coming out of a takeaway. 
for no apparent reason because they could, you know, and they claimed that racial abuse had been hurled at them. And the point I'm trying to make is it works both ways, do you know what I mean? People, yes, there are people who will discriminate against uh, black and Asian officers, and it happens now. And I, and I, I, I could tell you story after story about cases that are, you know, that people I've supported through their experiences. And you wouldn't even think that sort of thing goes on in this day and age, but it does. Mm. But that's, that's due to unconscious bias, which is very different from someone, you know, people targeting others because they're white. But, you know, I think today, today's generation fill me with confidence. Um, because they don't actually see colour of skin and they don't actually see gender or religion um, in individuals. They see the individual for who they are. And I think, I th- you know, I think that's a promising sign. Mm. It's taken a long time to get there, but it is a promising sign. And um, and I, I still continue to mentor and coach and support new staff. So I've just entered into a mentoring program to recruit um, to support new candidates that are applying to join the police force because I think you know I, you, we can't moan about the quality of the candidate or officer you know if we're not prepared to put in the investment and support them from the outset so that's that's what I'm trying to do but going back to your question there are a lot more females I would say there's about 30 percent of the workforce is a female officer which is a massive improvement on where we were in 1986. But there is a there is a problem with um, BAME officers joining, and I think a lot of it is to do with, like I said, you know, parents, families have other aspirations for their um, for their children, and those are the career paths that they choose. Um, and retention is another issue because I don't believe you know those officers get the same amount of support that their, you know, white colleagues do. And have you, like, have you seen personally or do you know of sort of anecdotal evidence or statistical evidence which says what sort of roles women are drawn to, most populate within the force? Um, Do they make it up to senior levels or is, is there a point where they're training and then they get to a certain point and then for whatever reason it, it drops off because we see that a lot in in academia yeah is that you'll get lots of you know women in science and they'll make it to maybe postdoc level and then yeah. and then they'll drop drop off as you're trying to progress up that academic ladder so is that a similar thing in the force have you seen it used to be the case um a lot of women choose to go into um safeguarding and uh, child protection, adult protection roles. And I think it's not as simple as saying, you know, are there barriers to progression? There are lots of other external factors, such as, you know, it's got to fit in with their childcare arrangement. There's a lot of flexible working going on, work-life balances to consider. In policing, there are a lot of couples that are married to each other, so there's conflict with shifts and things like that. So, I guess there comes a point when, you know, female officers have started a family and they've got to put their families first and choose roles that are going to complement their work-life balance. That said, there are a lot more senior female officers now than there ever were. And some do have young families and others are single and they're progressing very well. You know, even those with, you know, families and children, you know, they are, they, it's not a hindrance anymore. I think there used to be a time when it was a hindrance and there, there wasn't the confidence, but there's a lot more support now. There's a lot more coaching, a lot more mentoring. Um, and, you know, just probably in the last 10 years, I've seen the rate of progression increase rapidly, actually. So um, I would say there's a fair representation of females in terms of senior ranks. Um, but you do have to take into consideration the work-life balance. And your, from your own experience, how did you manage that balance of work-life, family life? And when you had kids, did it make you look at your career in a 
in a different way, maybe more concern for your well-being now you had kids? I think after I had the children, everything I did was determined by what was best for them. So personally, I wish I had gone and progressed through the ranks earlier, but it wasn't possible because it would have meant sacrificing that time with my family. Even though I made the decision to hold off on promotion and things like that, the roles that I was performing they were really challenging you can't it's you know policing is not a nine to five job i can't just say at five o'clock okay i'm going home that's not how it works you know i wouldn't think twice about working 16 20 hour days straight um because that's what you had to do in order to get the job done you can't just walk away you know um it's not that sort of job so i find it really difficult to manage the family you know, have get that balance right. And I don't think I did, you know, in hindsight, I don't think I did get it right. Because, you know, a lot, like a lot of parents today, you know, I ended up using uh, childcare facilities a lot and there wasn't a lot of support available that there is now. I didn't have family support near me and things like that. So, you know, my husband was in the job at the time as well. You know, so we were working opposite shifts. So, a lot of that comes into play and you know it takes I think having good organizational skills is key in terms of trying to balance your children your career and to be honest with you I would say I didn't really perceive perceive it as a career after I had the children my career choices went on hold really until I felt they were sort of of a like school age and they were both doing well and then I could start focusing on my career aspirations can so you made it as a uh, senior investigating officer in uh, serious and organized crimes and major crime so what sort of things does an sio do oh gosh that's a, that's a good question because there's no you can't just define it with a number of bullet points basically a senior office investigating officer firstly leads serious investigations and when I was in um, serious and organised crime you were talking about organised crime groups like drug trafficking, firearms trafficking you know and these are criminal networks that are operating across regions so they are really complex investigations so an SIO will lead the investigations, be the decision maker, be the motivator of the team manage your team, take the investigations through to trial stage and beyond. And, you know, basically, as an SIO, you're responsible for taking, motivating your team and taking them with you wherever you want that investigation to go, but also at the same time, ensuring that their health and well-being needs are met as well, because some of the stuff we deal with is, is pretty horrific. So, you know, there are some serious welfare considerations as well. You need your team working with you, not against you, not always for you. And I'm pleased to say, you know, I I have a 100% conviction rate. I have never lost a case. Amazing. Um, and I'm very proud. Yeah, I am very proud of that. You know, when you were saying about organised crime networks and long murder investigations, when you had the case in your hands and it was like right at the beginning, were there any things that you did to try and find your way through how you were going to deal with the case or, or was each case different? Each case was different. Each case was unique. It had its own, it had its own sort of nuances and challenges. In relation to the process, the process is always the same. And as an SIO, you know, you are... Um, when when I attended my SIO's course, you focus on the basics, really. That's what you do. And you focus on your investigative building blocks and your investigative strategy. And if you stick to your investigative strategy, you're unlikely to miss anything. But what's in, I think, the biggest challenge is processes. And, you know, in each force, there will be different processes. And... I think what was most challenging for me was knowing who to go to in those particular forces 
that could familiarize me with the process. You know what I mean? Because in each course, it could be different. For instance, like custody. So if we if we'd arrested someone for murder, you know, I needed to know what the procedure was in Cambridgeshire because Bedfordshire wouldn't have the same, and Hertfordshire wouldn't have the same, and there could be different local policies in place. So it's those things that where I found a hindrance really, and I really needed to build relationships with local people, local officers, local colleagues and counterparts so that I could call on them whenever I needed to to be able to help me with those processes. It's practical things that um, I found uh, more difficult. But in terms of the actual role, the difference will be with each investigation and the challenges that it presents. There's there's the good old saying, uh, "Good cop, bad cop." Is is that used first of all? Is that is that a strategy which is used for questioning a suspect, or what sort of approaches are there? And what would you look out for uh, in in a person which would um, determine mm. what sort of approach you would take with them? First of all, first and foremost, whenever you're dealing with any individual, whether that person is a prisoner, suspect or victim, you have to make an assessment of that individual and their mental well-being and their ability to understand and function as a human being. And you can imagine a lot of people we deal with in the suspect category, they've got a lot of um, challenges, a lot of issues going on, whether that's mental health or physical or whatever. The first thing we need to do is make an assessment about that person's mental, psychological and physical um, well-being. And secondly, there is a pro- there is a structure in place. We're all given interview training and that's the model that we follow. Good cop, bad cop don't really happen anymore. I think it did when I joined um, back in the 80s and 90s. But certainly that is not a tactic that is used now. You know, you mentioned 24 hours in custody earlier. 24 hours in custody worked with our teams in the major crime unit throughout all the series that were aired. And you will see from those interviews that those sorts of strategies and tactics aren't employed anymore. And part of that is also to do with technology, because a lot of our, a lot of the interviews, whether they're victims or suspects, they are visually and audio recorded, and so. There is not too much reliance these days placed on suspect interviews and getting an admission or anything like that. It's more about obtaining a full explanation from that individual and trying to capture as many untruths that you can within that time period. Um, Because we don't rely on admissions anymore and we don't really rely on an interview because when you get what people don't realize and probably the public don't realize is when you get to court stage that interview is edited so much because you know the prosecution the defense have to agree on what's going to be used and the prosecution have to agree on what part of the interview is going to be used and so you might have you know a 60 page transcript that is cut down to six pages for use during the trial so you can imagine if you're reading a book, you know, that is 60 pages and then it's reduced to six, it completely changes the whole context of, of that story, doesn't it? So, you know, technology has played a big, big part. But in terms of what we're looking for, really all an interviewer is ever looking for is the truth. Um, and sadly, we don't always get the truth. Sometimes we get embellished truths and sometimes we get nothing at all, just silence. And a lot of suspects and defendants rely on their right to silence, so they will say nothing or no comment. So gone are the days where police officers and investigators were reliant on suspect interviews. Our job now is to try and prove a case using other tactics and other means. So, for instance, with the, you know, with social media and mobile phones and digital media, there is so much. There is, you know, everybody leaves a a digital footprint everywhere we go. Every time you use your Tesco club card, you know, and every time you use your phone, you know, wherever you are, you know, there are much more sophisticated ways and techniques of investigators now 
you know, gathering evidence, convict an individual without any form of confession. So do you think social media, technology, you know, everyone has a smartphone, which is a camera and a voice recorder now, has GPS, so you can track them. Do you think that's helped policing and, you know, investigations and, and things like that? Yeah, it has helped enormously, significantly. But the downside of that is that with police forces across the UK and globally, I expect, they've had to invest a lot of time, resources and money into setting up digital forensics units, you know, and training people to try and extract that evidence and that information. And, you know, even in the times I was in major crime, four years, the technology and software was changing so much all the time, becoming more sophisticated, more accurate. And, um, yeah, it was quite amazing, really, the amount of data that could be extracted just from one single smartphone. That mm. then that brings about its own issues because trying to analyse that data then becomes uh, a problem and that can cause a lot of delays in investigations. So a lot of forces have now had to increase their capacity of analysts um, to try and interrogate that data and put it create it in a format that we can use evidentially mm. technology is sophisticated and it's changing so much mm. and now you have the emergence of deep fakes and edited digital content whatever that is so is that mm. is that a pressing concern do you think for for the force i think what's more concerning really is um cybercrime generally mm. that's one that's one aspect but also the grooming that's going on online of young people and children and and, and so uh, deep-seated and, you know, well-secreted within the, you know, ether, within those platforms that it's very difficult to infiltrate, even for specialists. So I think the biggest concern for forces right now is the levels of cybercrime that are going on because they are feeding organised crime groups, basically. They are facilitating organised crime group activity on a massive scale. And I think, to be honest with you, I'm not sure police forces are up to speed yet. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think they're always perhaps one step behind um, because, like you say, every day there's new technology becoming available, new software becoming available and... um, uh, yeah, I just feel that we're one step behind. But we are, you know, they're doing the best they can. But those threats won't be eliminated with the, the emergence of new technology or new software. It's just going to make it more difficult, I think. That's all. So you said that you've got an amazing record of 100%, <laughs> which mm. is incredible. Conviction, right? Yeah. So what has been the most complex or challenging case that you've worked on through your career and why did you find it so challenging? It's it's really hard because I couldn't pick one case, you know. They've all been challenging for their own reasons, you know. For instance, when I was a young detective, one of the first cases I dealt with and I was challenged by the SIO on that occasion, he challenged me and he said he believed I would never get a charge and I would never get the conviction home so for me that was red bag to a bull you know so <laughs> I, I and this was a case where after 9-11 there were a number of students who were attending Luton University and they thought it would be a good idea to create a bomb hoax at the university which resulted in a mass evacuation of the university and all its students and occupants uh, the amount of resources that went into um, you know, policing that and trying to identify any devices. And there was a makeshift, a very amateurish device that was located. And they were, those students were, there were three students, they were found guilty of um, planning a bomb hoax. Um, and they were subsequently removed from the campus and never went to university again. And then, you know, there are others. Um, when I was in major crime, there was a cold case that was resurrected as a result of um, DNA evidence 
and it was a taxi driver who had committed uh, a number of rapes on young females uh, in Dunstable, actually, in 1997. And he was captured 20 years later on DNA evidence wow. and subsequently convicted, yeah. And he also pleaded not guilty, so he made his victims give evidence, which was really harrowing for them to relive that mm. whole experience 20 years later. And then, I guess, you know, finally, more recently, one of my, my first homicide investigations when I went to Major Crime and Major, the Major Crime Unit Services, Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire and Cambridgeshire. The whilst I was based in Hertfordshire, my first homicide was in Peterborough and it was memorable for all the wrong reasons, to be honest with you, um, because it involved uh, a couple and she was, um, Eastern European, he was Lithuanian, and basically he murdered her in a bed sit and dismembered her body. God. Um, and disposed of her body parts in various places in Peterborough. But sadly, we never ever recovered her head. Oh, and then um, he, uh, he went on the run, and it took about three days before he was finally captured and he was sleeping rough in um, Peterborough. And he, bizarrely, pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life, but he never ever disclosed where the, the young poor lady's head was. So we did recover the other body parts in, from the various locations um, that he said he disposed of them in. So that was my introduction to my first homicide. Oh my goodness. In at the deep end. <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So it kept me busy for a while, but. You know, by way of example, that when my first day in attendance at that job, I worked 20 hours and then I drove an hour and a half home to get two hours sleep to drive all the way back again to Peterborough. And those are the demands that are placed on you mm. as a senior investigator. And how do you cope with that? How how do you decompress and compartmentalise that? Because I guess if you lived with that all the time in your mind, it would become... Yeah, awful. I think um, I have always been very good at um, compartmentalizing things in my mind, and um, I just feel there is. I, I've got a job to do, and I need to do it basically, and that's how I that's how I deal with things. I try and keep the emotion out of it because if I let things like that get to me emotionally, I wouldn't be able to do my job. That doesn't mean it doesn't affect you because it does. How can it not? It's human nature that you are going to be thinking about those things. There is going to be some sort of long-lasting impact with every homicide investigation and for different reasons, you know. And sometimes it's the way that the impact that it's had on the family that is heartbreaking too, you know. Um, but, you know, we are professionals and we have a job to do and we will do our job for those families, you know, to try and bring them justice. That's all we can do, really. They say policing is like being in a family, and it is, you know, because your colleagues know what you're going through. You can talk to them. You can share experiences. You can offload, and that does lighten the burden. There's a lot of stuff that you've dealt with and police mm. officers deal with mm. throughout their careers. So from either your career or just growing up or, mm. your, or your general life, what's been the most valuable mm. thing that you've learned? The most valuable thing I feel I have learned over the years is to be true to myself and I won't compromise my own personal values for anyone. I've always lived and worked by my values and a lot of, um, you know, like currently there is a big push on what they call the code of ethics in policing. And if you look at the code of ethics and the standards by which officers are expected to behave and perform they are everyday values in my life you know and that's how I've always lived my life they're nothing new to me and probably not to yourself either because uh, of the people that we are and honesty integrity respect for others I think all those things are key to being a good officer and being a good person so my you know I've always been to my values they're very personal to me um and i continue to live and work by them and i think you know that that is what i would say so 
What would you say are the most important things for effective communication then? I think one of the most important things is listening, listening to someone and also assessing their nonverbal communication, you know, the way their intonation, the way they say things, the way they present themselves, all those things like hand signals and their mannerisms, they, they can also speak volumes um, without any audio. So for me, it's really important that you listen because actually speaking is a very small part of communication. It's the listening and the interpretation and the understanding that forms a huge part of, you know, having good, effective communication skills. And also, you know, to check understanding, ensure that, you know, your audience or whoever you're talking to is actually understands what you're saying and vice versa, that you check their understanding and vice versa, yeah. Mm. So you said you like to unwind by listening to music, doing some physical fitness. So what sort of music do you like? Do you like to watch any TV shows or read any books? Mm. Have you got any recommendations for for anyone to, to unwind to? Well, I'm, I actually find it really difficult to read a book. Mm. I can't, I haven't read a book covered to cover for probably 30 years. <laughs> And the reason I think I find it, it's apparently quite a common trait amongst police officers. And the reason I think I find it difficult is because my attention doesn't, isn't on, I can't keep my attention on a subject for that long. Mm. Because in policing, you know, we, we read really lengthy reports and what have you, you know, and they're sort of, they're engaging in that we know what we're reading and we know what's to come or we know the structural format or whatever. But with books, I find it really difficult to read. I lose concentration. So that doesn't mean I don't read. I do read, you know, but I'll read newspapers or I'll read magazines, you know. I've got a book. I've got a book under my pillow here still. It's called Ten to Zen. <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> oh, it's fallen. Look. Ten to Zen. You see it? Yeah. Is it any good? Yeah. I don't know, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on page 51, and I think I started that about, well, when the pandemic started, <laughs> so 12, 12 months ago. But um, no, I, I do find it really difficult to read, mm. um, just purely because of the concentration that it requires. But I love music, all genres, you know, global as well. I like yeah, as you know, I like um, keep fit. You know, I, I do my uh, aerobic classes, walking. I did do some running. I'd really like to get back to running. And um, I love um, the West End. I'm looking forward to going back to the West End. I love going to mm. concerts. I was due to go and see um, Sam Mendes and Michael Kiwanuka or Michael Bublé. So hopefully that will all happen this year. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I've uh, since I retired, I've done a bit of volunteering as well. So, I I always said I would want to do some volunteering, and I found that um, rewarding. But with the pandemic, a lot of that has been put on hold mm. as well. So, but what I would say is, you know, as a final departing comment, if there is anyone out there, anyone who listens to your podcast, and if there's anyone out there who's thinking about joining, please don't think about it. Do it because there is a huge national recruitment campaign ongoing at the moment to recruit 20,000 officers, and it's never been a better time, so go for it. And what I will say, with, with the pandemic, a lot of people have now, you know, because they were furloughed or lost their jobs or whatever, they have actually turned to policing. The new recruits that they're getting in now, they are from all walks of life. You know, people who have had careers, fantastic careers, in other areas of um, of the public and commercial sector, you know, and they, they they are now turning to policing. So I don't don't have any doubts. Believe in yourself and go for it. Brilliant. I was just about to ask you what you would like to leave listeners <laughs> with, so you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, there you go then. And, and I'm happy to talk to anyone if they would like any further advice or a little bit of mentoring. Oh, brilliant. 
Well, I think that's about it then. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank you thank so much you. For, for joining me. No worries. It was good. It was fascinating. You know, there's good. so many things in, in your life as, you mm. know, a woman of colour and then policing, mm. which is just an amazing but really tough career. It is tough, yeah. Maybe one day I'll write a book about it. <laughs> maybe an audio book. <laughs> yeah, maybe an audio book. <laughs> Policing is a tough job, but joining the force in the 80s as an Asian woman, as Pushpa did, was incredibly challenging. Although she's faced obstacles and endured racism, it's reassuring to hear how the police are changing, from increasing and supporting the number of women at all levels, to tackling racism and unconscious bias. Pushpa emphasised the importance of listening in effective communication, both listening to the words that someone says, but also their non-verbal communication. In the world of sales and marketing, heavy use of online platforms often means you can't see who you're trying to communicate to. So it could be really valuable for life science companies to cement those tools which allow us to interact with our audience face-to-face as standard practice. Training client-facing staff in interpreting non-verbal cues may also be a good investment for when the world opens up again. It's also important to make sure your audience actually understands what you're trying to say. Scientists and innovators may get caught up in the science and jargon of the technologies they're developing. But it doesn't matter how amazing and useful your technology might be to someone if they don't understand it. One of the things I admire about Pushpa is her conviction and how she's remained true to herself and her values. And her passion for policing hasn't ended. So if you're looking for support as you start your career in policing, why not reach out to her? If you liked this conversation, let me know. You can find more information about this episode by heading to the Malby website. Use the hashtag pros and comms on social media to carry on the conversation and make sure you follow pros and comms on your favourite podcast platform to keep up to date with new episodes.